This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. This episode is sponsored by Stamford Modern, host of the panel Beyond Mid-Century on October 13th. Snag your ticket to the event by RSVPing to C-T-C-G-E-V-E-N-T-S at C-A-N-D-G.com. That's C-T-C-G-E-V-N-T-S at cndg.com. Please RSVP by September 29th. So much has changed over the past three years. After the initial shock of the pandemic, the design world has experienced a surprising boom, but now looks like it could be facing a slowdown. Supply chain disruptions have remained a consistent headache. Inflation and mortgage rates are on the rise. And sustainability, after years of lip service, finally seems to be becoming an issue of importance that will affect how homes are designed and built. The very concept of shopping has changed dramatically, with online sales only continuing to grow. So what does this all mean? Where do we stand now? What's selling? Who's buying? And what's ahead? I have with us today three people who have an inside view of what's happening in the vintage market and in design at large. First up is Anna Brockway, the co-founder with her husband, Greg, of Cherish. After her career in fashion, Anna turned her focus to her love of design. Since its founding in 2013, Cherish has become one of the largest and most successful online sources for vintage furnishings and decorative arts. And Anna was just named as one of the top 20 people to watch in 2022 by Furniture Today. Cherish has just released its second resale report full of fascinating information and insights, which she's happy to share with us. Hello, Anna. Hello, Michael. Great to be here. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. I'm also pleased to welcome Laura Hodges, a Baltimore-based designer known for her international approach and tailored, clean line, and serene interiors. After working with Jamie Drake and Thomas Jane, she founded her own firm, and her work has been featured in numerous magazines. She also maintains a shop, Domain, and serves as a brand ambassador for the Sustainable Furnishings Council. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here. Glad you're here. Finally, I'm happy to have with us Stephanie Schofield, a vintage dealer and owner of 214 Modern Vintage, a multi-dealer emporium in High Point, North Carolina. There, surrounded by the showrooms of some of the country's biggest furniture brands, she oversees a vast former machine shop stuffed with an ever-changing array of 19th and 20th century furniture, artworks, decorative accessories, and a broad range of styles. And all of it tempting, I can attest. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. So, Laura, I want to get us, I want to start with you because I want to get a sense from you how much things have changed in terms of clients being willing to deal with having vintage or, as some people call it, used furniture in their homes. And I know Anna has a lot to say about this, but I want to get a sense from you about. Are your clients open to this now? Have you found greater willingness for that? Are people more interested in that? How do clients feel? We've always embraced vintage from day one, even before we kind of 
started doing it more often. I think a lot pe more people are doing it now than they used to, but we've always done it. And so I think we've sort of attracted a clientele who was already interested in it and open to it because we, we use it as part of our selling from day one when we first mm -hmm. start talking to our clients and we, cause sustainability is important to us. So it's one of the things that we always say that we do as part of our sustainability initiative is that we're always sourcing vintage. We're looking for pieces that can be reupholstered. Maybe we're keeping some pieces that the client already has. So not necessarily always buying brand new is sort of part of our aesthetic, if you will. Right. And I know, I think sustainability is really, you know, an important, I, it's maybe more important than a buzzword, but I think younger clients probably in particular are more interested in that. Whereas in the past, I know I talked to designers who said their younger clients didn't want any, they only wanted all new. They didn't want anyone's old things in their house. So that's very encouraging to hear that. Stephanie, what about you? Have you noticed that, I'm sure you did good business during the pandemic, even if a lot of it was long distance and on the net. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was it was it was surprising, honestly. When everything shut down, we thought, okay, this is it's this is it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it took like three weeks and then everything sort of took off and designers were reaching out because they had clients who wanted to go to the beach house and quarantine there for the summer. So help quick, we have to redo this beach house in two months. What do you got? So it was just calls like that all of a sudden all spring and then into the summer for that first summer quarantine. So it was really about availability. And then those are also designers that buy from us throughout the year. So, right. But they just knew that we would have what they wanted. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Anna, the, one of the advantages of Cherish is that you deal with so many designers and so many sellers that you actually have figures to this. So I'd love to get a sense from you what you found during the you know, and you're about to announce for the second. Report. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the big thing that happened during COVID was the supply chain shutdown. I mean, first off, as Stephanie was saying, like unprecedented demand for home furnishings. Like everyone was sitting at home going, this place sucks. Let's get it redone. And so, <laughs> so, so all of that kind of came to life and everyone started shopping and going bananas. And then the question was like, how do we get stuff? And the stories are long about the, 48-week lead times and all the kind of stuff that was happening. And so I think a lot of people who, unlike some of Laura's customers who we love, who are naturally inclined towards vintage and want to go there from the beginning, a lot of people kind of had their hand forced into trying vintage because it was what was available, right? Yeah. And so Got to get your hands on it. I felt like it was this really unique window of people being experimental and in some cases trying things for the first time that have become long-term habits and a new, kind of a new way of thinking about things. Because I think when people are exposed to vintage and sort of forced to get into it as they were during the pandemic, that you start to realize all the advantages that come with it. So a lot of it's like what Laura was already talking about, which is the uniqueness and the one-of-a-kind nature of what it brings to a space. And that's just always been an important part of vintage and antiques and why designers have always sort of gravitated towards it. And I think having general people who may or may not be working with a designer sort of understand how much better and how much more unique and kind of how, how much um, more stylish in many ways an outcome is when you use vintage and getting them confident around doing that was a really important part of the pandemic. And then I think the second thing that people learned was the convenience of it. I mean, it's really nice to just have to wait for a truck to come across town 
or through a couple states versus boats coming from offshore and warehouses and trucks. I mean, it's actually kind of a miracle anything gets delivered. When you think of like all the points and processes <laughs> along the way, you're like, wow, there's like so many places for this to break. And it does, you know, and it's not that vintage delivery is always flawless, but we sure do our best to try to make it as easy as possible. And there's just a lot of lead times that are taken out of the process. And then there's the value component, which is it's usually much more affordable. So, you know, out of chic, faster, more affordable, those are all in the wins column for vintage. And then I think lastly, and what has become increasingly important, and I was really nice to hear Laura talk about having clients that value it and being a designer who really cares about it is this notion of sustainability. And so from all of that, what we've been seeing is the barriers around buying vintage used, pre-owned, pre-loved, however you want to call it, have just really come down. So some of the numbers are- Or certified pre-owned. Certified pre-owned, as in the car business. I have lots (laughs) to say about the car business. I spend an extraordinary (laughs) amount of time studying used car business. I'm happy to talk to you about that too. But I mean, one of the really interesting things is there used to be amongst some folks sort of like an ick factor that was around like, oh, do I want to buy it used? 98% of the people who we polled, and we didn't just poll our customers, we just polled furniture buyers in general said there's absolutely zero stigma now around buying pre-owned used. That's a huge change. change. I mean, it's a massive change. change. And um, I think a really good one and positive, obviously for our business, but really for the planet. And I think for design, because it it, it does make for more interesting outcomes. Right. Stephanie, have you noticed that your client base has broadened? I mean, you have a multi-dealer shop, so you know you talk to all the other dealers as well. But do you think it's it's broader and bigger and it's shifted a little? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm thinking about the dealers who sell in my shop and mm-hmm. the things that they've told me. I mean, if we're just talking about the pandemic, you know what? I have dealers in upstate New York, and they saw that influx of people moving out of the city and wanting to get to the country during COVID. And their shops started booming. People were a lot more open to experimenting and trying things and... I think some of that is sitting on Instagram and being exposed to all these different designers and and maybe they were inspired before but didn't have the time to put into it. So now they had the time to drive up to a little shop. You put your mask on, you can see things in person. Yeah, it was the availability, I think, of the small stores who were catering to to the local clients like that who could be open. So their businesses took off because of that, because of people moving to the area or moving out and just needing the basics. And then when I think about the showroom in High Point, I think some of that is just awareness. But we do see a lot more retail shops coming to us that maybe carry new furniture lines and they want to put a little vintage in their retail store too. So they'll grab accessories or art that will go mm-hmm. alongside maybe the, the new furniture. But that's that's actually yeah. great to know. I, I, I mean, wasn't aware of the- that. One of the really interesting things we look at is how does home furnishings as a, a resale category compare to other categories, right? So like, are people as comfortable buying used home furnishings as they are to buying used clothing? What's the first? Used books. <laughs> so it's um, it's definitely like the concern around it has really, it's fundamentally changed. And again, I think that's one of the lasting impacts of the pandemic that people just got comfortable with new methods of shopping because they had to, right? And those habits die hard. Right. But it's interesting to me, pre-pandemic, the antiques market, which I know is slightly different than the vintage market, but the anti- all the antique dealers that I talked to said business was horrible, that clients that had bought things 40 years before wanted to sell them now were shocked how much they had depreciated over the years, that there wasn't a market for antiques. 
which is a broad category and overlaps with vintage, definitely. Although vintage, we tend to think of as more 30s on. But Laura, have you found with your clients, because I know I've noticed from your work that you mix in, I'm not saying you're going to be using tons of Georgian brown furniture, (laughs) but it is beautiful. I love it, you know. But are you buying more things? Are clients more open to a broader range of things? So... I'm a little bit bossy, I suppose. And That's so your job. I think that you gotta be bossy. I intru- <laughs> yeah, right. you're gonna say you need. They want to be bossed around. So if I introduce it to the design and say that it's appropriate and explain why it's appropriate, then I think they'll be open to it. If I just said like, "Do you want me to go and find some antiques?" They might be right. like, "Not right. really," you know. Right. But right. Um, so I kind of don't really ask for permission, right? I just kind of say like, here's what I think we should do. And, and I present it as like a plan that's that's appropriate for them and their lifestyle and their home and that sort of thing versus like, here's an antique. Do you like it? So, right. you know, right. and, I, and it is interesting because pre-COVID, yes, all that brown furniture was kind of like dead in the water and people weren't really super interested in it. Now it feels like it doesn't necessarily have to be a specific style. Well, maybe for me, I don't know. I feel mm-hmm. like it doesn't have to necessarily be a specific style. It doesn't have to just be mid-century modern or specifically like cottage core or whatever else people are looking for. I think people are more likely to blend and have more of an eclectic feel. So it's just whatever makes sense for the design and for you and for your home. And it can be blended more easily. I think people are more open, at least when we're talking to them about it, to consider things that they never maybe would have considered in isolation as part of a full sort of cohesive plan. Right. Because I think people don't know how they would use it. They don't, you have to show them. They can't visualize it. Yeah. That's so interesting. Anna, one of the things when I was reading through this report that impressed me, I mean, we're talking about inflation. You said the average list price on Cherish has actually gone down a little bit. How how, how did that happen? And how did you let that happen? Well, okay. All right. So here's what's happened, right? So everyone knows that inflation has been a challenge over the past year. And when you look at the general consumer price index, it's up by about 8.6% year over year. And there's lots of people screaming and yelling about that. It's starting to come down as gas prices drop. But, you know, it's been really high in some specific months and overall higher than anyone would like. And when you look at the consumer price index for furniture and home furnishings and bedding, which the government publishes, that actually is even higher than what we're seeing for general CPI increases. So newly made furniture has gotten a lot more expensive over the past year. And what we saw on Cherish is that our listing price stayed steady to slightly down. Our selling price actually went up because we found people were trading up and buying nicer, more beautiful things. And of course, we have more interior designers than ever shopping on the platform. Interior designers tend to have larger budgets, and so they're more confident spending more on items. So our selling price has gone up, but our listing price has actually stayed flat to gone slightly down. And so I think what's really interesting about that is it underscores, again, because we don't have energy costs in our production process built into the pricing on vintage, because there aren't labor costs built into the production and mm-hmm. built into the cost because it's already produced um, because we don't have um, transportation costs in the actual shipping and all of that from far away into the country. All of that is basically stripped out of a vintage pricing model. And so as a result, what's always been a really good value has become an even better value. And I think that's that's one of the things that has stood out. And I think the fact that 
while that listing price has stayed the same, people are buying more expensive pieces, kind of speaks to people's increasing confidence in the category and their willingness to um, buy more and more 100% valuable, beautiful statement-making pieces. And Stephanie, maybe that's your experience running running um, your outfit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've we've noticed that in High Point and outside of High Point that people will pay yeah. for the really good stuff, for the really unique piece, for the really beautiful thing. They, that's what they wanted, uh, and they'd still want, which has been really. Uh, I guess everything is just is just been really interesting to see how things have gone over the last few years, and I'm really curious to see where it goes from here. But right now, still, like we can sell our best pieces, and they may be the most expensive pieces that we have in the showroom. They go first. Yeah, interesting. We were talking about the stigma, which always sort of surprised me because, you know, I've always said you don't want your home to look like a showroom. You don't want your home to look like you just went and shopped the D&D building, 200 legs or ADAC or whatever, because then it's kind of soulless. So how the British live, we have a episode upcoming on the new tradition of, you know, how you keep British tradition French. They live fresh. They live with things for over centuries, really. And Stephanie, I'd love to get a sense. You are surrounded by showrooms, brand name showrooms. So so have you found that more designers are coming to you and are more willing to, they realize the need for you? I mean, not that the brand showrooms aren't decorated and have accessories and artwork and stuff, but they're not as fun and funky as, you know, (laughs) 214 Modern Vintage. Um, Huh. I really have to think about that. I think the people who like the designers that come to market, if they like vintage, they're coming to see us. I know plenty of designers that don't use vintage in their projects, and it drives me up a wall. I don't understand it, but that's what their clients want, and that's the vibe, and that's their aesthetic, too. And they might get a little piece or two for their home, but it's not in their projects. And I don't really know how to bridge that gap or reach those those people. And honestly, I think artwork... Vintage artwork seems to be like the entry point for some people. It's just easier to, and I think that's just the way with the art market becoming like sort of like a collector's market over the last however many decades now, there's a lot more interest in, in vintage art. I think about that a lot. Like how do we capture some of those people? Because I think it's just the the people that are naturally inclined. Like Laura said, the people that go to her, they know that she uses vintage in her projects. So she, she may not get a client who doesn't want that look right. already. Right. But I mean, you can still be a modernist and, you know, love this, the, you know, clean line modern things. <sighs> and there's tons of stuff from the 70s and 80s that would look great in your minimalist modern interiors. So I would hope that more and more designers are realizing that. And not to mention you mix in, you know, Swedish antique rugs and painted furniture and all that. It just enriches everything. But I guess our question is, how do you get more clients to be willing to do that and the designers to cater to them? Although it sounds, Anna, from the report that many, many more people are open to it than we thought. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we found that was kind of surprising, and, and maybe Laura can speak to this in her experience as well, but we actually found that there is an inverse relationship between income level and willingness to buy vintage. So it's funny because I think a lot of times people think, well, if you're buying used, you're doing it for the cost savings. And I've certainly spent a lot of this talk talking about the value of vintage from a cost standpoint. But what's interesting is what when we look at it and we pull people by income level, 
what we see is the higher the income level, the more willing you are to buy vintage and antique, which is just such an interesting like inversion of, I think, how people would normally think about it, which is kind of to say that people who could pick anything or have a range of choices that are less limited than others from a financial standpoint are choosing this. And I think it's because, and Laura can speak to this with her clients, but I think it's likely like the one of a kind and only mine kind of and personal style component that's so important in exclusivity. I don't know, Laura, if you have a point of that view on that and talking with your clients, but. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I sort of, I'm finding a lot of interest in this conversation <laughs> for me because I haven't heard a lot of what you were saying before. I haven't heard of people not really being open to it. And maybe it's just my little bubble that I live in. But you I live like in a your rarefied world. world. It's good. I, I think it is. Well, <laughs> stay there. Yeah. I like world. Lane. Stay there. <laughs> I, well, it's interesting. So when we start designing a project, we always start looking at vintage first. So we look at a furniture plan. We look at the design sort of aesthetic and the direction and everything. And we start with vintage because... Well, from a sustainability standpoint, but equally as important from a uniqueness standpoint. And what I think we haven't sort of touched on is the quality. For me, I want to be able to guarantee that our clients are having a really, really good level of quality in the furniture that we're purchasing for them. And more often than not, I mean, not all furniture from like the past 20 years necessarily, but further back than that, like I would say 70s and earlier, there's a really high quality in the finishing and the manufacturing and the fabrication all in the design as well. Like it's really thoughtful design. It's really well put together. And so I know that I can rely on all aspects of a vintage piece or an antique piece to probably be better <laughs> in general. And so even when we're working on the most modern space, I actually sort of approach vintage and antique pieces for those spaces in the same way as, as, as I would approach vintage or antique artwork. I think of it almost like as a piece of sculpture in the space. And so when I present it to our client, I'm saying, this is going to retain its value. This is an important piece that has provenance. And it's important that your home should be full of beautiful pieces that aren't just, and they're functional too, of course, we want to be able to use them, but it needs to also retain its value, right? So if it's just a piece of furniture that's whatever, I don't feel necessarily good about doing that. Like I, I love being able to say to them, this is, it's an expensive piece, whatever it is. It's a really good quality. It's a really beautiful piece. It's well designed by this person, but it's going to actually retain its value as well because it's an important piece and it's really well made. Especially, I'm going to jump in because I have a friend who recently bought, within like the last three years, a knockoff Eames soft pad desk chair, and it's coming apart. And she's had it for three years. It's brand new. And I was like, you could go to Cherish. I just looked. There's one on Cherish. <laughs> I love for, it. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Selling I girl. did. I was like, <laughs> I did. she's like, I need a new desk chair. And I was like, well, right. we're not going that same route. Right. Okay. We're, we're going the vintage route. This chair has been around for 70 years. It's going to keep going. And this other thing is it's headed for the landfill. It's, it's really sad. Yeah. For everybody. <laughs> yeah. It's like fast it fashion. It's proven to be a, an ecological disaster. Yeah. And so is fast furniture. You know, right? Nobody wants a landfill in their backyard, but this stuff has got to go somewhere unless we stop making it. One of the things we did this um, time with the resale report, Michael, that was kind of fun. We were inspired by a lot of the fashion resale reports that kind of talk about investment value. 
and what brands and what items really have that resale value long-term to Laura's point, when you're talking with a client, you want them to feel confident. Yeah, it's expensive, but it's not, it's not a sinkhole. It's something that can live on and retain value. So we did a big analysis of what brands and specific items by these brands perform over time in terms of holding their value. And it's really interesting. The number one brand is actually Baker Furniture. And it's it's Baker and it's two collections. One is the um, historic Charleston collection, which is a really traditional, beautiful right. collection, does very well with us. And then Michael Taylor's work that he did for Baker, he did a Far East collection, which was beloved. And that's done really well over time. And then we see the same thing with Henry Don and Noel perform really well. And then also Ralph Lauren. And I think Ralph Lauren has the benefit both of having made really beautiful furniture, but also the cachet of that brand right? from other categories as well. But it's an imprimatur for anyone. Who's yeah. Like, and you know. I mean, and those are some of the bigger names. I mean, there's certainly examples of tons of other like more niche makers and really beloved items in particular, like the Linier Rosé Togo sofa just right. is the Which gift is that suddenly back going. in fashion again. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing it in everywhere, all these interiors in the shelter magazines with that Togo yeah, chair so and our sofa. Our sales on Togo chairs, sofas, Togo, the collection, were up 151% last year. It's the number one emerging item on the site. So it was really fun to dig into all the data and really look at like, what's checking and what are people interested in. But there's definitely, to Laura's point, certain ongoing franchises and brands and products that just retain their value over time. They're just good and they they last. And well-made and yeah, yeah, they last, yeah. Do you love mid-century quirks and features? It's tricky to fit vintage and antique furniture into contemporary spaces. That's why Stamford Modern designed a line of mid-century inspired furniture with authentic details and fine modern finishes. Visit cherish.com slash shop slash Stamford Modern to see what's in stock and ready to ship. I do want to bring up another question I want to ask. Stephanie, I'll start with you, but I also love Laura to weigh on this. What about artisans? Because one thing's about vintage, especially like upholstered pieces probably need to be reupholstered. Pieces need to be refinished. They need to be lacquered. My Instagram feed is full of reels of people lacquering old bureaus and making them turquoise and pink and putting new hardware on. And it's like, okay, they make it look easy, but I know it's not that easy. So I've heard a persistent complaint for for at least the past 20 years from designers saying there's not enough artisans, there's not enough craftsmen. Is that an issue? And is it something that those of you who deal in vintage and older pieces, antiques, is it something that we need to work on to get more people interested in doing that. I'd love to know what your take is. Stephanie, why don't we start with you? Oh, yeah. Uh, It's a constant struggle. I'm in North Carolina. I was in Chicago for about five, six years. I moved back during COVID to North Carolina. And I still send stuff to Chicago to get it upholstered because that's where my guy that can do anything is. Shout out to David <laughs> at Comfort Upholstery. But Same I never know. know. <laughs> I know. And I just blew, I, just I blew up my spot. <laughs> David, discounts, please. Oh. Um, no, but he's, he really can do anything. And I mean, I, we have people in North Carolina, obviously. It's like furniture yeah, it's world one of the down here. Big furniture capitals. Yeah, but with the great upholsterers are already working for the big companies. And then you have guys that will do it on the weekend that you can maybe get to do stuff. But um, yeah, there's just a, it's really hard to find people who can, who can do it and do it well. Mm-hmm. Baltimore's a lot closer, 
Laura, if you have any contacts up there. Yeah, but Laura. Even like, <laughs> you know, how about you? I mean, are, do you, are you able to find the oh. crafts people that you need? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, no. I mean, it's a shot in the dark every time we get mm-hmm. a new piece. And I love shopping for vintage. It is my number one thing to do always. But... It makes me sad when I have to overlook a piece because I know that we have to get it reupholstered. And I know that the reupholstery puts us back out of that lead time now of a new piece of furniture, which is absolutely crazy. But we're waiting three months to get things reupholstered right now because there's a dying art form, I think, is what it is. There's nobody who's doing it anymore, especially in our area. There are a few and we, we find them eventually, but it's just the long, long lead times that we have gone and told our clients, hey, we're going to get this vintage piece. It's beautiful. We're curating all these amazing pieces. And guess what? They're going to be faster. And then guess what? They're not because now we have to get it reupholstered and this person's three months out. So it's difficult. It's really difficult. It's almost like the design industry needs to create a program or something to fund you know, like they have yes, scholarships please. to design school. We need to create something that people learn how to become craftspeople, learn how to work yeah. with wood, and learn refinishing how to do too. Refinishing, refinishing totally. It's a lot of the, a lot of the pieces that we get in, and we know this. It's not like a it's not a, a surprise or anything. But we'll we'll get a piece because it's special and uh, and it fits and it's perfect for our client. And we know that when we get it, we're probably going to have to have it refinished, touched up, fixed, repaired, whatever it is. And we're okay about that. But finding somebody to actually do it and do it properly is is a challenge. Yeah. Do you find, I find, Laura, that depending on the piece, it's like, okay, this can probably go to that guy. I think yes. so-and-so can handle this. I'm so happy to have found like a marble person close by that can fix things. But yeah, it's like a juggling act. Like, okay, give this, maybe this person, or let's try this new person and see what happens, fingers crossed. Yeah. And I know as a consumer, like I, because I also on occasion like to go to flea markets and antique stores and stuff. And you'll see something, this is a great piece, but oh, it needs this, this is broke. And I don't know how to do, I don't know the, re- I don't have the resources, so I pass by it. Sometimes very So sadly. I cheat, I cheat a little bit in this whole thing because my dad is fantastic oh, at refinishing good. furniture. Oh, so I've actually go. got yeah. some like, fantastic chairs off Cherish oh, and you. he refinished them for me. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. That's that's my little cheat. But yeah. well, we actually had these two chairs that we got from Cherish that were actually in our, um, we did uh-huh. a show house last summer for House Beautiful. And um, they were actually on the cover. And my dad refinished those chairs, which is pretty cool because they needed that's a little so help. Great. But they're great. Yeah. This is something we talk a lot about at Cherish, which is, you know, I think we've done yeoman's work in terms of bringing to life the options for to buy. But how can we help and support with the service network for people to kind of take it to the next level? And, you know, when you think about all of the online services that have developed around helping connect people to, like in the wedding industry, helping connect people to florists and party planners and caterers and all that kind of stuff, like that doesn't really exist within the home home industry, the home design industry. And so I think that that's an opportunity. Yeah. It's interesting. Some designers I know will share their resources. Oh, I have a great <laughs> curtain person. I have a great upholster and they'll share other ones. You, you'd have to kill them to get the, the Well, there's so be- few. Except for Stephanie, who just gave us David at Comfort Upholstery in Chicago. Yes, Stephanie gave us a great resource. I'll break that down. <laughs> 
I couldn't I couldn't help myself. Very generous of you. <laughs> no, but I, I know I've heard designers say they're you they know don't like to. Yeah. We have to help everybody. They need more clients. I can't keep my upholsterer yeah. full time. You know, I don't have enough, so he needs more clients. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's an issue that we need to really keep thinking about. And it's interesting in education, I think finally we're realizing that in America, that not every kid mm-hmm. needs to go to college, you know, that college isn't the answer coming out with several hundred thousand dollars in debt for somebody. Some people, are, I'm not good with my hands, but there are people who are great and that needs to be more valued and appreciated and encouraged in our society. You know, I think that some of the folks that I know who are good at those trades are not mm-hmm. great at marketing themselves. Mm-hmm. And I just happen upon them, just a friend of a friend or something like that. But I think that's maybe some of the problem. I mean, I know there's a great refinisher who ended up going to an auction house and working for them because drumming up the business on his own was a little bit difficult, but he has all the skills. Yeah, um, they're craftsmen. So that, they're not entrepreneurs. Right, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, it's something something to be thought about, you know? Um, I'm thinking Anna's about it. You guys are getting excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm planting seeds. I'm planting seeds here. <laughs> But I, you know, and I want to get back to something I mean, we we touched on very briefly, and I hope I didn't sound glib about it. But um, you know, the sustainability, and and this ties in with again getting the craftsmen. If if we had more craftsmen to really refinish and fix and reupholster these pieces, more pieces of them would stay, more of them would stay out of the landfill, and I think people would understand the value of it. But I think Laura, I'd love it if you talk a little about that because you are uh, we've had the head of the Sustainable Furnishings Council on the podcast. I we, It's a, such a huge thing. But how do you incorporate it into your work and how do your clients feel about it? Does that make them feel better about the work that you're doing for them, knowing that is you're working on that? I approach it kind of like going out to a really nice dinner, right? So you go out to a beautiful dinner, everything's amazing, the service is great, you have a really good experience. And oh, by the way, everything came from a local farm, and it's organic, and it's really good for you. Um, so we kind of approach it like that. It's it's hopefully very good design and a really good service that we're providing. And it's actually good for the planet too. So you're not creating this massive carbon footprint by renovating your home um, within what we can control, of course, which right. is mostly the furnishings and the finishes and the materials and that sort of thing. So our clients love it when they know that we're going to do it. And they, I don't know that they necessarily come to us and say like, I mean, once in a while they will, somebody once in a while will come and say like, this is what I want to do. And it's like a really big deal for them. Most of the time they come to us and they say, we love what you're doing. We love your portfolio. We love your service. And it's actually very appealing to us that you're also, you know, making every attempt to sustainability as well. So it's not necessarily like their number one thing, but I do think it's um, important to them more and more people find value in it. And especially we kind of just do it anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're not right. doing it because our clients it's, are asking us right. to do it. I will say, we're going to get a wallpaper for your bedroom and it's not going to be off, you know, off gassing. We're not going to do a vinyl. We're not going to do all these other things. And same thing with furnishing, furnishings. We're going to source vintage because it's better for you and better for the planet. Um, it's not usually a cost thing at all. It's usually more like we kind of treat it almost as like curating art, right? We're going to select the correct pieces for you and we're going to start with vintage because those are going to be um, probably better made, interesting, unique, all the things, you know, that we already talked about. But 
our clients see value in the curation of the whole package together, all the unique pieces that are for them. Yeah, I think Laura's hitting on something really interesting that like I comes came across also like in, in my time in the fashion industry, which is sustainability and environmental friendliness are always welcome, but they're rarely the first um, point of purchase decision-making, right? So what you have to do as a brand or is to find that fit with a client, um, a buyer for style, price, quality, look and feel. And then the underpinning behind that is, and it's sustainable, but it's right. m- you have to look good in the dress people. and it has to look good in your home, right? Exactly. And, and then yes. you're like, and right. it's sustainable. <laughs> and often it can be the jump ball deal breaker, right? So if you're looking at two things and you, they're equally fantastic and you go, which one am I going to do? That can help make the the choice easier and push per- someone to the vintage side is the sustainability benefit. But, um, you know, you have to, you have to, tick off those other boxes as well. And that certainly was the case in the fashion industry. You know, the jeans need to be fantastic and the finish needs to look right and the fit needs to be good. And then I'll buy yours versus someone else's because of sustainability. Right. No one's going to buy an ugly schmata, you know, no matter how, <laughs> no matter how eco it is, right? <laughs> okay, I'm going to pick I also right. find I also find that I think it's the first thing that goes out the door when other things come up. Yeah. Unfortunately, it went right out the door with COVID, you know, like nobody cared about sustainability anymore because we're concerned about safety, right? We're concerned about costs. And so I've, you know, we found that with the SFC that people are willing to pay about 10% more when it comes to something being sustainable, but not much more than that, you know? So it's not that big of a deal to a lot of people, but it's nice to, it's a feel good thing. Yeah. It's like you love it and it feels good that you are, you know, somehow either helping or not, at least not hurting the right. environment. And, and I think there's a growing awareness of it. I mean, God knows you read about it more, but I know people talk about it a bit more. I mean, I'm not saying it's the number one quality, you know, but I mean, and people, you know, the the surge of interest in electric cars, I mean, also gas prices got so crazy. But I think there is this, a growing sense that this is an important consideration, as you said, Anna, not the number one consideration. But you know, when you point out, like in this report, it, some staggering number of tons of furniture that's kept out of landfills and stuff because you're actually, yeah, people are repurposing them, recrafting them, yeah. using them, whatever, and vintage. And yeah. It does make I a mean, difference. The, the number that always stands out to me is that if people bought more vintage, it would change primary material consumption, which is, of course, the one of the primary sources of of uh, pollution by um, 32%. So you just think like if we just reuse more stuff, we like that we can have over time that kind of an impact. That's from the MacArthur Foundation. It's a really powerful thing. I mean, the other thing, and Michael, you and I have talked about this before, is I think that there's this kind of like, I think this happens a lot with, for some reason with Americans, which is we're kind of an all or nothing culture. So we think, oh, everything has to be vintage or I have to do 
250 sit-ups every day, where in fact, if you just did 20 sit-ups every <laughs> three days, it would be better than doing none. And the same thing with vintage. It's like, you don't have to have your whole house be vintage, but if you use right. like parts of it, like Laura's right. talking about, right. like all of that adds up and is helpful. And so I think that that's the other thing to make sure that sometimes when we talk about the environmental advantages to vintage and the circular economy, it can get kind of preachy and scary. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it's like something's better than nothing. Right. Yeah. And so if you're just right. And believe me, I'm not going vegan, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I, I eat a way ton less meat than I used yeah. to. And right. I don't miss it right. at all. So, you know, and I know that that's good for the environment, but that's it's good for my right. health, too. And that, you know, all of that. But I, you know, it's just it's a shift in sensibility, yeah, exactly. which is, I think, what we're yeah. doing. And it's, Stephanie, I'm sure that you have seen that in terms of the customers you have coming in, the designers come into you. I think also with the other thing that has helped with this is there's a broader range of styles that people realize. You know, it's not style is not as monolithic as it, even in the fashion yeah. industry. It used to be, oh, you had to wear a mini or you had to wear a midi or, well, that didn't exactly work. But, you know, <laughs> there was always the rules. Now there's yeah. not rules and there's a wider range. So I would think that that also has helped your business. And actually, you made 214 Modern Vintage even more interesting and fun to go through because there's such a range of items in there. I think people feel a lot more free to go outside the box, for sure. I was talking, speaking about apparel and fashion. I have a friend who came up in the 80s and she was talking about how you had to go to school, you had to wear this polo shirt, you had to do this, you had to do that. And then that really started to shift in the late 90s, and people were, you know, it always starts with, like, youth culture. But if you, like, look at the kids on Instagram today and, like, how they're decorating their homes with vintage, they will try anything. And there's, like, nothing that's off limits, and um, they're very expressive. And um, I think that there's, like, this growing, like, younger um, contingent that is, they're, they're budding collectors, um, and they are, um, they're really adventurous with their interiors. And I, I think that kind of trickles up in this case. Um, and people, yeah, people will go out there and get and get that little interesting thing uh, for their house or for their clients. And that's a thrill for us when we find something that we think is really interesting and maybe strange or unusual or super unique or one of a kind. If we can get a designer excited about it, and then it's like, you know, a team effort, like, oh, we got to get this to the client. We got to like, kind of, it's like, um, it sounds, maybe this sounds... Um, Gosh, but like you're selling like your love and excitement for this thing and it's contagious. Um, that's so not gosh at all. That's passion and that's what should be selling, re you're respected yeah. <laughs> and rewarded. Yeah. So you, so we are selling our excitement, um, you know, and, and then maybe Laura and I meet and we we talk about this chair, like, oh, it's going in the bedroom. Okay, well, let's get the client on board. What's the fabric? I love to talk with just with designers about that stuff, um, just to get the perfect piece for somebody. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's important to have things that you love in your home that feel, you feel express your style, um, that are different from what your neighbor has. And vintage is a is the perfect way to do that. Um, there's and yeah, we have a little bit of everything at our shop too. We we do all styles because people will will people want that eclecticism. Yeah, and it's fun. Okay, I'm gonna now I'm gonna go now that I've said all styles are equal and open and it's a great <laughs> thing. I'm gonna totally switch gears and ask each of you, what do you see as being the next obsession or the next trend that's coming along? Because like I I've noticed just my wanderings and looking at the magazines and the books and stuff. Certainly in the last three years, there's been a huge revival in wicker and cane furniture. 
I think ceramics are back in a big way. So what do you guys see on the horizon? Laura, let's start with you. What are you looking at? What are your clients responding to? So it's interesting. I think that as there are fewer people able to make things because this sort of artistry has gone away as more as more sort of fast furniture has come around, people are understanding how awful it is, <laughs> right? And they're throwing away their their sofa in three years and they're, you know, having to upgrade things and that sort of thing very quickly. I do think that more artisan made things are kind of coming up a little bit. People appreciating handmade pieces. I actually appreciate that with Cherish that you can actually search within like a certain range of where you live or where your where your project is. So you can say a thousand miles or five hundred miles. And what I love about that is that you can kind of you can see what's what's local to that area, which helps on shipping costs and that sort of thing. But you can also see what's maybe appropriate for that area because um, we have projects all over the country. So we can kind of see like what's being curated in that area that's really special and unique. So I, I think in general, the idea that people are appreciating handmade pieces, quality made pieces, things made in America more so than just like, well, it's cheap and let me just get it. Like they're not necessarily, I think, looking to, and I've, I've even seen this with younger people too, when it comes to clothing, getting things that are going to last longer, getting furniture that's going to last longer too. Mm-hmm. And Stephanie, have you noticed any trends, people coming in, looking, asking for some particular thing, Swedish rugs? I don't know. Well, I guess things have been like the stone thing, marble, like any kind of like natural material that's been really popular. And the studio pottery, like you said, that's been really popular. I've been thinking about this recently, um, what what the next big thing is, you know, just as a reseller, like what am I going to be out there looking for? Because you kind of want to be Right, you have to be forefront. ahead of the curve. Yeah, um, and I haven't nailed it down yet. <laughs> I, I'm trying uh, okay. to figure out where everybody's going, but um, I think you're right. The wicker thing and split reed bamboo stuff is really hot right now, and I don't think that's going anywhere. I, I think I, I also pay attention to colors, and um, I know green was having like a big moment, but I think we're going blue now. So that's maybe Anna. Anna probably has the. Details yeah. on that. Yeah, sure. Anna, well, you, you can tell us what's... I mean, the amazing thing is you have we got the data numbers baby. at your fingertips. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, pretty much everything these guys said, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's definitely on fire. A couple of the things that we've been seeing that I think are really interesting is um, games and game tables have really been taking off for us. I don't know if you guys are seeing this in your lives or, or Laura, with your, cl- your clients, but increasingly so many people after dinner are watching their own show on their own laptop. I feel like the family sitting around the TV or the couple sitting around the TV, it's just like, I don't know how much that's happening as much as it used to. And so I feel like games are a way that people are spending a lot of time together and game tables, especially if you have kids or for parties and stuff. So that's something that surprised me because I grew up with game tables and love them, but I hadn't thought about them for years. And then we really have seen um, a lot of interest in that, which has been interesting. The other things that for us have been just for like a meta trend from a style standpoint has been really a return to traditional. So we've had mid-century on so strong and it continues to be really a staple of our business but we are seeing you know overstuffed sofas in florals and skirted sofas with a ruffle you mentioned swedish flat weave rugs yes but we're also seeing like more ornate 
and kind of feminine interpretations of that. So that it's not like full-on Mario Buada 80s kind of over-the-top floral, but definitely like softer, more traditional, kind of layered versus, you know, if we'd had this conversation six years ago when Cherish was really in its nascency, it was much more of a spare aesthetic, kind of that blogger, kind of pale pink and tan desert vibe. And it's just very much moved on. And it feels much, much to me, much more traditional. Like we're selling out tall topiaries or, you know, tall lamps with all the uh, chandeliers, I mean, with all the flowers and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's more effusive in a way. And, and that's been really interesting to watch that shift happen. And, you know, it's not overnight, but it, we see it going there. We were just doing a trend report and we were looking at that. And it's really interesting how it was interpreted, Laura. So in some cases, it was like, if you imagine this kind of like Swedish pine chairs that are have kind of a flat carved roundish back, not upholstered, just very, in a weird way, almost very modernist, but kind of handmade feeling. And then also stuff that feels more like 70s kind of Big Sur kind of, you know, I'm thinking like J.B. Blunk kind of feeling stuff as well. So it's just like this very, they're very different interpretations, but of what you're talking about, which is almost kind of this raw wood vibe, which is cool. Yeah. And I was amused to note in this report that one of the big sellers is nightstands. And I just, I just wonder if that's because everybody just wants to spend all their time in bed. <laughs> really good nightstands are so hard to find. I, I'm, yeah. I mean, it's a. Well, maybe it's true. That's we, why always do, yeah. we always do. We always do vintage nightstands. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm buying them all. Laura's right. the person behind the number. <laughs> <laughs> the other really big good category. <laughs> we solved that. The mystery. other really big category for us is um is dining chairs. I mean, that's just been a phenomenal business for us. And Stephanie, you might see it too, but it, it, the idea that like I grew up with, with my grandparents had the dining room set, you know, with the chairs and the tables and the hutch and the whole thing, like nobody really decorates like that anymore. And so I think the idea of mixing and matching and using vintage, maybe with a contemporary table or maybe not, but that's a really important, I think, part of the way people are living now without eclecticism. Amazing. It's fascinating. Well, it's a wide, wide world of vintage out there, and you guys are really making it so compelling and interesting to people like me, clients, other designers. So I found this discussion totally fascinating, and I really want to thank my wonderful guests, Laura Hodges, Stephanie Schofield, and Anna Brockway of Cherish. And thank everyone for listening to the Cherish podcast. (laughs) You've been listening to the Cherish podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherished Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.